about seven and a half months to make it through the first 12 chapters of this book. It will take us about four months to make it through the next nine chapters. The first 12 chapters of this book are called the Book of Signs, and those are the chapters that deal with Jesus' public ministry. The last nine chapters of this book are called the Book of Glory, and these are the chapters that cover only the last few days and weeks of Jesus' life. Over the next few weeks, that is from now until Thanksgiving, we are going to be hanging out with Jesus and his disciples in one place, in the upper room. Everything that happens from chapter 13 to chapter 17 will take place in this one room, and they will all take place on the night before Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And it is here in this upper room that Jesus teaches his disciples the things that they will need to know, the things that they will need to believe, and the things they will need to do in their life and ministry after he has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended into glory. These are also the things that we need to know, believe, and do as well. And so I want us to pay close attention over the next few weeks to what Jesus has to say, not only to the disciples in the upper room, but also to us as if we were sitting there with them. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand and give your undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word from John 13, 1 to 20. The Word of God reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, he may be seated. Now, as you know, in the context of John's gospel, what's happening here is Jesus has been missing in action for the last several days. On Palm Sunday, he departed and hid himself. And for the next few days, no one knew where he was until on the eve of Passover, he shows up here in this secret hiding place, off stage, away from the crowds, in an upper room, so that he can hang out with his disciples. As this scene opens up, we immediately feel the tension in the room. John tells us that Jesus' hour has come. That is, that this is his last night as a free man. Tomorrow morning, from the perspective of the story, tomorrow morning Jesus will lay down his life at the cross. So this is the last night of his life on earth before the crucifixion. John also tells us that it was the night of the last Passover. And like the night of the first Passover, we see that God's people have gathered in a house with their lamb, seated around a table to eat a holy meal. Like their forefathers, they soon will pass through water, enter into a wilderness, and the firstborn son will lose his life. The flesh of the word will be abused, beaten, crushed, and destroyed for the life of the world. Now, if ever there was a time for anyone to have an excuse to get away from it all, to keep to himself, to have some alone time with the Lord, this would have been the time. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes and imagine what you would do if you knew that this was your last night. If you knew all that was about to happen over the next few hours leading into the next morning. If you knew that it was your last night and that in a few hours you were going to be handed over to a mob of thugs and executed in the morning. If you knew that you were going to die, would you want to be eating and drinking with your friends at a party? I wonder how you would act. I wonder what I would do. I imagine whatever we decide, whatever we come up with, it would not have been what we see Jesus doing in this story. When Jesus saw that his life and his ministry were coming to an end, we see clearly in the story that he did not selfishly withdraw from his disciples in order to shield and protect his heart from pain and sorrow. Rather, we see Jesus leaning into the storm, drawing near to his disciples in order to protect and defend their hearts from pain and sorrow. And how does he do this? He does it by showing them the full extent of his love by loving them all the way to the end. John uses the word telos in Greek, which means that Jesus is loving his disciples all the way to the end goal of his mission. He loved them all. 
He loved them all, including Peter, who was going to deny him three times in just a few hours. He loved them all, including Judas, who was going to betray him in just a few hours. He loved them to the very end of the world, the old world, in order to bring them into the new world. Now before we look at how Jesus loved his disciples, I want us to think about the most common ways that we demonstrate love to people that we care about. Think about ways that you try to show love to people you love. A birthday comes along and what do you do? Sometimes you throw a party, you buy a cake, you give a gift. Christmas is coming up in a, in a couple of months and what do you do? You shop, you buy a gift, you wrap it up, you give it to the person because you love them. Valentine's Day is coming up, so what do you do? Well, if you're a man, you forget all about it until it's too late and then you're in trouble, right? No, you give gifts to people you love. You heard it straight from the horse's mouth this year. You give gifts to people you love. This is what we do. Now, we give things to people because that's a way to show that we care about them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus does something that goes far beyond that. It actually makes what we do pale in comparison. How does Jesus show his disciples that he loves them in this upper room on the night of Passover before his crucifixion? He shows he loves them by giving them the gift of himself. He gives them the gifts of hospitality and generosity. Hospitality because he receives each and every one of them at his table. Generosity because he serves each and every one of them without partiality or favoritism. What we see in this story is Jesus serving his friends and his enemies equally. We see here true love fleshed out. So in this story, think about what's happening. Jesus and his disciples are gathered around the table for the Passover meal. And Jesus knows some things that these guys don't know. He knows the truth about his origin, his purpose, and his destiny. He knew where he came from, why he was here, where he was going, and he understood the meaning of his life. And so what did he do with this knowledge? He rose up from the supper. He took off his teacher and Lord garments. He took up a servant's towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a wash tub, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In other words, Jesus has taken off his glory and his power, and he has put on weakness and shame. Why? Because he wants to love these guys, show them his love. John tells us that when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments again, he resumed his place at the table, and then he asked his disciples, Do you understand what I have done to you? It's a great question for us to consider as well. Do we understand what Jesus had done, why Jesus had done these things to his disciples? Now, you haven't had as much time to think about it as other people have, so don't feel bad if you don't know right away the why and the what of this story. I want to point out to you that in the story we learn that not even Simon Peter understood everything at that moment. It only made sense to him later on in his life. 
I want to offer a few reasons why Jesus washed his disciples' feet and what it means for us today. Now, some of the reasons are obvious. And so when we hit those obvious reasons, you'll be like, yeah, I knew that. And then when we hit the ones that are less obvious, don't feel bad. You're just learning something new as I did this week as well. The first reason Jesus washed his disciples' feet is because he loved them and he wanted to serve them by practicing hospitality. The notion of foot washing does not have its roots in the Greco-Roman world. It did not have its roots in anything happening in the first century. It had its roots in things happening way back in the day in the ancient Near East, all the way back to Abraham, in fact, as far as I could read. For example, if you look in the book of Genesis, you find a story about the time that Abraham was sitting at his tent in the heat of the day. And while he was looking out on the landscape, he saw three men approaching, and then he immediately ran out to greet them. In Genesis 18, we learn that the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Abraham saw them, and when he met them, he bowed down to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. Now, we don't have time here to make all of the really cool connections between this story and the story in John 13. Uh, I would encourage you to do that at home on your own. Suffice it to say for now that washing the feet of other people was a way to practice hospitality. It was a way of helping them refresh after a journey. So we see a connection here. As Abraham once welcomed God to his tent and practiced hospitality towards him, now we see Jesus, the Word made flesh, who tabernacled or tented among us, welcoming friends and enemies to himself and practicing hospitality towards them. So it's no longer man showing hospitality to God, but God-man showing hospitality to his people. The second reason Jesus washed the disciples' feet is because he loved them and he wanted to serve them by practicing holiness. In the book of Exodus, we learn that foot washing was very much a part of the rituals of the priests in the Old Testament. And we heard this in our scripture reading before the sermon. But just to remind you, here's a little uh, taste of what we get in Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout the generations. Well, what do priests have to do with disciples? What do... Uh, or what does the washing in Exodus have to do with the foot washing in John's gospel? Well, 
there are many connections here. Explore them on your own time. But the main thing I want you to see here is that as the priest once washed their feet in order to consecrate themselves for worship and service before the Lord inside the tabernacle, so now Jesus is consecrating his disciples as priests to send them on mission and service outside the tabernacle into the world. Jesus washed their feet to make their feet beautiful and clean so that they could run around the world with the gospel of salvation in their mouths. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Jesus is preparing these men to join him on mission for the life of the world. The third reason, the more obvious reason, that Jesus washed the disciples' feet is because he loved them and wanted to set an example of practical humility before them. Did he really want to clean their stinky and dirty feet? Apparently so, because he did it. Did he really want to make a theological point, as I've tried to do by looking at Old Testament stories? Maybe not. But he did have something important in mind here, didn't he? He washed their feet because he wanted to set an example for them. That is a holy pattern of life. In John 13, verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so he's showing them his love to the very end. How? By humbly serving them with his sacred hands. Now I want you to think about what that means. It's the word became flesh. God became man. And he has hands, and he's been using these hands throughout his ministry, throughout the story of John's gospel. These are the same hands that made a whip and drove animals out of the temple. These are the same hands that took bread and broke it and took fish and multiplied it and fed multitudes. These are the same hands that touched the eyes of a blind man. And now these sacred hands, these holy hands, are touching the dirty and stinky feet of a bunch of men. What do we see in this story? We see the sovereign Lord making himself a lowly slave in order to serve sinners like us. That's what we see in this story. Jesus is laying aside his power and glory and taking up weakness and shame. He is exchanging his purity for our sins and his pride for our humility. No, our pride for his humility. He's trading this majestic crown for a miserable cross. That's what we see in this story. And this way is leaving his disciples, leaving us, his followers, an example that we should love and serve each other just as he loved and served us. So throughout this story, really throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is urging us to put skin on our love 
by stripping away our pride and by serving one another in humility. John Chrysostom says in one of his homilies on this passage of Scripture, Jesus did all these things himself, showing by all that we must do such things when we are engaged in well-doing, not merely for form's sake, but with all zeal. Not merely for form's sake, but with all zeal. Which I take to mean we must serve humbly from the heart, not merely serve outwardly with the hands. That's what it means to love and serve others in imitation of Jesus. That's what it means to do to others as Jesus has done to you. And it's at this point when in, in Jesus' teaching in the story of John 13 where things get very practical and very personal. Because it's at this point that we are called not just to love one another with word or with tongue, which I think we need as well. It's good to hear the words, I love you. But we're also called to love one another with work and with truth. In other words, we have to really mean it when we do it and when we say it. We need to think in concrete terms about ways to imitate Jesus in our love and service. And this is where things get kind of tricky and sticky for us. Because now we've got to think about what am I going to do to wash the feet of people around me? What am I going to do to wash the feet of people who are broken and dirty? What am I going to do to imitate Jesus Christ in my life? And I shouldn't be the only one asking this question. You all should be asking the question as well. And if we're all asking the question and engaged in conversation together, then we are going to discover ways to love and serve one another as Christ Jesus loved and served us. Now, I do want to give you a few uh, sort of vague, general practical ways that we can wash one another's feet. These are merely suggestive. I'm trying to kickstart your thinking, so to speak. Prime the pump and get the juices flowing. But one of the things we need to do is we need to be deliberate and intentional about sharing life together, about paying attention to one another. Not just noticing who's here, who's not here, but really paying attention to what is going on in each other's lives. We need to take note of conversations and not just hear what's being said, but hear what's not being said. Listen between the lines, so to speak. We need to give each other the gift of our time, the gift of our presence. This is one of the most important things we can do. Probably one of the most counter-cultural things any of us can do is to give each other the gift of our time and presence. Most of us, quite frankly, feel like we don't have enough time for each other. We don't make time for each other. We have a million things to do in trying to wash the feet of the saints and take care of people in the name of Christ kind of gets pushed down on the list of our priorities. But Jesus says, look, I've done this for you and I'm calling you to do it for each other. You might have a lot on your plate. You might feel like you've got a million and one things to do and you don't have time for it. But i got news for you. Let me just put this bug in your ear. You're not dying tomorrow on the cross that I know of. Maybe you know something I don't. So until you get to that point, let's not make excuses about how we don't have time for each other. We need to make time for each other. That's a part of sacrificially serving one another. Now I do want to say... I think that many of you do a great job of that. 
and we can see growth in this. And so I'm not trying to lecture you and, and reprimand you and get on to you. I'm just trying to nudge you along and say, let's do more and more of what Christ has called us to do and not less. Let's not relax and, and start coasting. Let's remember that he's called us to this. We need to be present. And being present means that sometimes we have to be in each other's homes. Yes, your home is a wreck. So is mine. We've got stains on our carpet. So what? We need to show hospitality to one another. Why? Because it's in that moment when we get to engage each other in life. We get to break bread. We get to enjoy each other's company. We get to bear one another's burdens, form friendships and bonds. We need that time. We need to give generously to each other. And I'm not just talking about in our tithes and offerings, which are great, but I'm talking about giving generously to each other in terms of our energy, our attention. We need to give generously to one another. And on and on and on we could go. As I thought about it this week, I realized the applications are limitless. And by the way, I'll be the first to say I have a lot of room to grow in this area. I prefer to think of love and service in the abstract, not in the concrete. But here we're called to take the Word and make it flesh, right? So that's what we want to strive for and work on. Now, I do want to say this to you as I meditate and reflect on the text, and as you're reading it with me, we can all see this. I just want to highlight something for you. I want you to, be, uh, I want you to have a fair warning here. No matter how much... You love and serve, no matter how well you do it, no matter how much time you devote to it, no matter how much you love and serve one another, no matter how much you love and serve others, there will always be mixed results. Always. There will always be mixed results. You know this as well as I do. We've been living it for quite a while now. But it bears repeating. You will love and serve others. And at least one of these three things will happen. Maybe a combination. Some people will not receive the love and the service that we offer them. Like Peter, they are going to kick and scream and fight and resist. And they'll have a thousand reasons why they cannot receive this gift. A thousand reasons why you can't be the one to love and serve them. What are you going to do? Say, whew, good, you let me off the hook. No. You gotta keep doing it. You gotta keep doing it. You gotta persevere in this. You keep on loving and serving them. Other people will gladly receive all of the love and service we offer them. They will lap it up, they'll take every drop you offer you offer. But like Judas, they will turn on you and they will betray you anyway. It's not your fault. It's theirs. They're seeking their own interests, their own personal gains. They don't care what it costs, who it hurts, even if it means, even if it means throwing you under the bus. They don't mind doing it. You're going to love and serve people who at some point will turn on you and devour you. They will betray you. They will sell you out. You're going to love and serve people who will eventually leave your church or leave your life. 
You're going to love and serve people who, who will turn and hurt you in some way. You will bear the cost. You will bear the shame. You will bear the brunt. And they'll be off scot-free for a while. What should you do? Withhold your love, withhold your service because you don't want to get hurt just in case it might cost, just in case someone might turn? No. You keep on loving and you keep on serving anyway. But what if they turn? What if they betray? What if they harm? Then praise God that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Now that's easier said than done. And I have to choke back a lot of stuff to say that and fight a lot of tears to say that. So I don't mean to say that it's easy. I don't want to be cavalier. But love and serve anyway because it's the right thing to do. Finally, many people re will receive all the love and service we offer them with gratitude. Yes, with gratitude. They will actually appreciate what you've done. And furthermore, they will actually join you in loving and serving others in imitation of Jesus Christ. They'll get it. And they'll say, what do we do? What more can be done? Who else can we love? Who else can we serve? Where, where are the needs? What's broken? What can we fix? And they will join you in imitating Christ and together you will keep on loving and serving one another and others. And you will be praising God and rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ along the way. So I wanted to leave you with that happier note after some painful notes in there. Each week we come to the Lord's table, and today is no different. The table is set before us, and as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, I want us to remember some gospel truths that we can pull from this story. I want us to remember that Jesus is the true and better host. Better said, He is the true and better servant host, who is merciful and gracious to sinners. He spreads His table before us even in the presence of our enemies. He washes our broken hearts and our dirty feet. He refreshes our fearful and troubled souls. He makes our cup overflow with grace. He gladdens our hearts with wine. He chases after us with goodness and steadfast love all the days of our lives, all the way to the end of life. And He prepares a place for us so that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's good news. I don't know if you've been washed by Jesus. I don't know if you believe your sins have been washed clean or if your heart has been washed clean, but I would encourage you and urge you with all your heart to cry out to the Lord and ask Him to cleanse you. Ask Him to make you new. Ask Him to give you a new heart that is more loving, a heart that is more serving, a heart that is willing and able to imitate Jesus Christ in these ways. Let us pray together.